Well, hi everybody, and welcome to another conversations over coffee with D and Tony. Yeah, I like that emphasis on D. Now, I had an interesting conversation with a woman last night that I saw on Zoom that she spelled her name very similar to Deirdre, and she corrected me when I said hello, Deirdre. She said she's a Deirdre, and then she explained that I think in England it's Deirdre, but in Northern Ireland you'd be called a Deirdre. Oh, so there's some national differences on the spelling because in the past I've had people call me Deirdre. 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 So what, how would you spell Deirdre the same way as you spelled Deirdre? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, this Deirdre had a name spelled almost the same. I think she might have had an extra R in. Um, that's, a, that's an alternative spelling. But, it re- but actually, funnily enough, talking about that takes me back to my childhood and being called Deirdre. Well, what's that? What? Why? You were being reprimanded when you were called Deirdre, right? No, I think I was just called Deirdre. I don't know when I started calling. Deirdre. <laughs> Probably with an, yeah, with that. What would we call that? That Nasal sort of twang? <laughs> that na- yeah, that ochre. Yeah. So that would be an ochre sort of pronunciation, Deirdre. Yeah. I don't know when I called myself Deirdre and then I stopped calling myself Deirdre. I called myself D. Deirdre. You're like, Deirdre. <laughs> Those other sort of O's we put on the end of everything. I know. I I remember when I first met somebody who talked about having convoys. And I I was a bit taken aback because I'd never done that. That's an Aussie. But, you know, that's picked up in the UK now where they do... They have um, convoys as well. They do. They have care convoys. We had a convoy last night. We had a big convoy last night. Exciting. That was yeah. so good. So that was the launch of our care experience and culture website and what we call a digital archive of fiction, non-fiction, memoirs, biographies, um, lists of writers who have a care experience in their background. Funnily enough, I recalled yesterday that Prince Philip, who's recently died, actually had a care experience background. He won't be on the archive. Oh, yes, he probably will be because we'll probably, there'll be biographies of him. So we probably need to upload some biographies. Yeah, I'd say, though, that he was, he was in the exclusive class, though, wasn't he? Like, he wasn't, he didn't come from a poor family. He didn't get, no, no. But I think it was something that we've talked about before, that I often think that the psychological and emotional impact is probably very similar. But the outcomes, if you come from an upper class background and you have a care experience of some kind, often those outcomes are quite different to, and the expectations of you are quite, quite different. So it was, it was not unusual, for example, for the British who were working in this elsewhere in the empire, like in, in India, to want their children to have an English education. And so often the parents stayed in England, sorry, in, in India and sent their children back to England. And so some of those children, and Alan Turing, who's the computer genius, he was one of those. So I think his, he was only seven months old when his parents went back to India and left him and his brother in foster care. But the expectations were that eventually he ended up in, you know, in some of the elite or those mm. uh, so-called elite so schools. Even though they were in kinship care or foster care, they had privilege. They had, yeah, so yeah. So you that fits under the, like the notion around privilege, does that determine the degree to which someone was um, 
the impact that I guess foster care may have had on them might have been a bit different because um, you know, they did have a privileged background. They did have a privileged, but as I say, I wonder about that emotional impact. And I did read a, a you know, did a quick skim read of a BBC article about Prince Philip yesterday, and there was certainly mention of the difficulties for him of being separated from his mother, who ended up, I think, in a mental in- institution for a while and then back in Greece. So, and he he mentioned something about you know, well, where is home for me? So it's not like it doesn't have some sort of impact, but in terms of uh, where he ends up in life, well, yeah, that's why, why that's quite I different. <laughs> why is it I don't feel empathetic for him. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That yeah. that you don't uh, feel empathetic for him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I struggle. Is it is it is that because of the privilege associated with him? Yeah, because I think he, you know, people like him have a pri- look. I I can appreciate what it means for anybody, regardless of socioeconomic background, how it is for a child to be removed from a parent. I kind of get that, and that's not about privilege, but I think there's a leveling of the playing field somewhat when one has privilege as well. Because you just don't have the same battles um, that, well, money and privilege and position doesn't mean you have the same battles as somebody who doesn't have money, privilege or position, you know? No, no. So I might feel empathetic for him as a child. Yeah, that's right. Going through that, no doubt about it. But as an adult, you go, oh, well, you know. So Things even themselves out at the end of the day, <laughs> I reckon. Well, no, not really, because he was elevated above everyone, so there was well, nothing even it. there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All us commoners, we yeah. had to suffer our lives as it was dealt to us. Yeah. Like ex- the way his life was dealt to him. Yes. You know, there, there must be you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids over the years that have been sent to Eton and to privileged schools, uh, boarding schools, where they wind up, even though they're separated from their parents, and some of those schools were horrific and abusive and everything else. But they wound up with a, a pretty privileged existence after all of that. So, And that, was the, that was the expectation of them as, as well. Well, I was tempted to say that it was a small price to pay, but I realised that for some of them it was pretty damaging. It was damaging, and you'll find that some people rebelled against it and didn't end up doing what was expected of them. And there's a guy called Nick Duffel in the UK who has written about that that some did say, look, you know, this was just horrific and terrible and I don't want to be a part of it and I don't want to reproduce that for my children. So, yeah. they, so they did rebel against it. Yeah, fair enough. But back to last night. Yes, fabulous, fabulous we didn't talk night. about Prince Philip at all. <laughs> no, no, no. That's quite irrelevant, actually. Um, but it was... Uh, so do you want to talk about the number of people that came on board to the... I don't know, would you call it a conference, a launch? launch. It, was an official, it was an official launch um, of our website. So Rosie and I started off by talking about how we met, and we met on Twitter, I think, and then had this um, interest in literature and care experience and orphan characters in common. And um, it was Rosie's idea, though, that, you know, because we would talk about, say, did you read this? Did you read this? But there wasn't one place that you could go to and find, you know, a collection of care experience characters. And um, Rosie had 
been doing some of that in her website. She'd been pulling some of those together and she's doing a PhD. So, But it, um, she didn't have any Australians in that and that's kind of fair enough. Um, so we got to talking about it and it was her idea that we put it all together in one place. And so we started um, building this collection and we had a chat with a, uh, a lovely, lovely young man in the UK who's also a care experience and he's, he was our website consultant and he suggested that we start putting together a collection in something called Zotero, which we started to do and then we applied to the Welland Trust in the UK for some funding and that enabled us to work on that project consistently from I think November and then do the launch yesterday and so we had the granddaughter of the Reese Foundation and the Reese uh, I think it's Jan Reese had set up the Reese Foundation which provides funding for care experienced people on a number of programs and they also have the Welland Trust and we had her granddaughter Polly come along and cut the ribbon and do the official launch the sort of thing that Prince Philip has probably been doing a lot of <laughs> over his lifetime well and it was done remotely and she had a ribbon there that she had trouble cutting funnily enough <laughs> but uh, yeah that was lovely that she she didn't dominate she just but it was, it was good to have her invited to, to do that yeah, it was important to us that we did have somebody come and represent because we're so grateful to them for the support that they provided. So, and there's pretty wide representation there. There were people from Penny Wright was there from Australia, uh, Commissioner for no Commissioner, she's the Guardian of Children and Young People here in South Australia. That was good that she was able to attend, and then there was uh, lots of people from around the world, but mostly UK. There wasn't anyone from the US, was there? I don't think there was anyone from the US. I haven't looked at all of the names. And one of the limitations is that once you get a number of people up on your screen, half of them are on another screen. screen (laughs) On screen too. And so I didn't um, get to see everybody who was there. Certainly I would like to make a a few more connections with, um, with the US. Um, but really delighted with the turnout. And we also had Nell Musgrove from Australia and Frank Golding from Australia as, as well. So having some Australians on board. And then there was a woman called Anne Harrison who was talking about an Australian connection. And Jamie also talked about an Australian connection that he had an uncle out here who wrote a story about his mother, which he didn't know about. And that was that was fantastic. So Yeah, that was that, that woman, the... Um the, the coloured woman. Yes, it was Anne, Anne Harrison, I think her name yeah. is. And she's written a book called Call Me Auntie. Yeah, she had. A, and she couldn't come to Australia. Where her foster parents came to Australia, but she couldn't come because, of course, she was a ward of the state. So, had no, well, why wouldn't the ward of the, why the ward of the state if she had foster parents wouldn't allow her to come to Australia? I'm a, yeah, it's a bit confusing because the, the UK were quite happy to ship off all ship those, that. well, that's right. all all those child migrants. migrants. <laughs> so, so that's a bit confusing. Yeah, yeah, crazy stuff. Well, they weren't, they, they weren't necessarily um, guardian. They, what's the word I'm looking for? They weren't necessarily under the care of the state, were they? Those migrants? Many of them were. They were in orphanages and children's oh, homes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it seems inconsistent that they would decide to keep her. Well, I think if there's one thing you could say about the child protection system worldwide, it's pretty inconsistent. Oh, that's, true. that's true. Very true. But a great night. 
It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was really very good. People on board and, uh, and we had Kenny Murray. Do you remember oh, meeting him Kenny, when we were in, in Glasgow? We're very fond of Kenny. Yeah, what a fabulous presentation he did. Yes. Explain that. Yeah, where he had gone through. So he, um, he, I described him as a, introduced him as an award-winning agitator <laughs> because he is, um, because he had been running a campaign about representations of care experienced people in Scotland. And he's done a number of fantastic things like pull together a group of people to talk to Dame Jacqueline Wilson, who's a, one of the major British writers and has had care experienced ca- characters like Tracy Beaker. And um, they got together because they were a little bit appalled because she wrote a book about Tracy Beaker has when she'd grown up. So she was an adult and she'd been living in a housing estate and she was a single mum. And care experienced people in England went, what the, you know, in the UK went, what's going on? You're just re- reproducing a stereotype of care experienced people. And so they met. And so good on Jacqueline Wilson for being willing to meet with the people and, um, so so he does that sort of things. He gathers people around. He writes to Netflix in the UK and says, what are you doing having these shows like You, which is an American show, which is Stalker and the Stalker happens to be a care experience character and didn't need to be because st- there are lots of stalkers. Um, and so we had him and then Kirsty Capes, who um, I don't know whether you met her when we were in the UK, but at the Liverpool conference, but I met her because she was, I was chairing a session with her and Rosie talking about their PhDs and I was very impressed with Kirsty because she had been looking at representations particularly of girls and women in fiction and um, she was supporting herself while she was she had no scholarship so she's supporting herself while she's doing a PhD and supporting herself in publishing and so she's written a novel and so she talked about that process of of writing something she started off I think what we're going to write about sci-fi or dystopia or something um, something that she wasn't familiar with but she'd been encouraged instead to write about a care experience character called yeah, she Bess. started to write in a masters I think didn't she or yes 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 that's uh, right yeah and then she just Changed that to a PhD, which has resulted in a book called Careless. Yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. Yeah, great, great title. It's a great title, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. So, I got to check my orders because I, I'm pretty sure I pre-ordered that some time ago. So, and it's due for release next month. So. Yeah, and she read the second part. She read two sections from her book, and the second part um, I found quite quite emotional. The writing is quite beautiful. I thought, and uh, um, yeah, I just found that uh, she was talking about a young girl who was 15 who was pregnant, I think. That's the main protagonist in the book, I guess. Yes, best I think her name is. Yeah, yeah, and that, uh, and she wrote about, I can't remember specifically what it was though, but she wrote so beautifully and it just brought a sense of emotion to you that uh, you've really felt for this kid, the struggle she was having about being alone and being being pregnant. Yes, and I felt that too, yeah. Which actually yeah. reminded me of, or just reminded me then actually, of you know, the two young women who were pregnant here not long ago and, you know, so was, and while they were in the care of the minister. Um, you know, what, that, what even that might have been like for them, the loneliness and the outrage and the blame and all the other stuff that goes with discovering that you're pregnant. And, and there was... Child, when you're pregnant and young. 
Yes. And there was a really poignant moment when Kirsty was writing about the young girl was alone and even alone she felt embarrassed. Mm. So all of this internalised stuff that we take on board about, um, you know, from the rest of society about how we should feel and how we should respond. Yeah. Yeah. And and I liked Kenny's stuff, which was about how media perceives, how media propagates the notions, the negative stereotypes of kids that are in care. And he did a lot of analysis of um, news articles. And it was really interesting that first news article he analysed was about a care home in which he actually was living. Um, and so, and it wasn't as it was perceived, but there's the community's response to that, thinking that these kids were going to become, you know, the local hoodlums, the vandals, the rapists, the crimina- criminals and whatever, were going to be these kids that were generated from this home. And I was tempted to send a message off uh, across the chat to to Kenny or to the group and say, you know, d- does that mean that the only people committing crimes out there are kids that come from or have a care experience or are in care. You know, it's just a bizarre notion that for some reason these are the troubled kids and that they're the ones that are going to cause the trouble because they're not. You know, most of the trouble comes from kids that are probably (coughs) conflicted about who they are and the peer group that they hang around with but do have at home parents that are supposedly supposed to be looking after them, I guess. So, you know, and it's way out of proportion to why these kids actually are. It's very distressing. It's very distressing. And he was talking about, and I, I see that quite often because there is a journalist in the UK who writes, writes consistently on um, issues around care experience um, in the UK, uh, in England, I guess he writes about. But, um, and he often posts stories about protests about children's homes being proposed in areas. And that was Kenny's. And so it seems like a real issue and one that I don't see in Australia, or perhaps that's because yeah. I don't read the local rag, but no, I, I don't see that in the same I way. I don't see it here as often. I'd be interested to know if there's anybody that listens to this that, that is aware of any protests around residential care facilities being set up in their neighbourhood. I think probably a lot of people don't know that they're there, perhaps, to some extent. You know, and we're less, you know, we're less community-minded now, it seems to me, that we're very cloistered in the way we live our lives and we don't necessarily notice who's living next door or across the road or, or whatever, or it's just not advertised. But some of these homes that I think Kenny was talking about were kind of these large estate-type homes, weren't they? The, the picture you had of that one when which he lived was quite a massive house. Yes, uh, we. So I don't know how many children were living there. Yeah, yeah it'd be an interesting conversation to have with him because Kenny's not very old. Very old. Mind you, we are, so we think everybody's really young. Yeah, well, <laughs> he might be older than we think he is. Yeah, well, but he's not... Early 30s, maybe. Yeah, maybe he wouldn't be any older than that that's for sure so so we're not talking very long ago no, not at all it was very distressing to see those attitudes so prevalent and he had so many examples and and as he said often people didn't say outright we don't want the children here but it was implied in what they were saying so they would use kind of code um, you know we've got a quiet neighbourhood or something like that you know 
I can't remember the specifics. So what, what do you what do you hope will happen as a result of this project? Well, as Rosie was saying last night, really it is about changing the narrative. So I remember reading a, a sociologist called Norbert Elias, and he did a study and concluded that if you want to stereotype a group, what you do is the powerful group tells just the bad stories about the group that they want to stereotype or marginalise. And they tell only the good stories about themselves. And by having a diversity of stories, um, we want to change that narrative. So instead of just having the negative stories all the time, that story, you know, that the expectation that kids will be, that kids in care won't amount to much, which is often what they're told, um, that they will end up in the criminal justice system, um, that they will be the rabble-rousers or whatever. We'll tell a different story. And do you remember... Um, it was Jackie, I think, talking about Charlie Chaplin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was an older woman that could actually remember. I think she remembered. Yeah, I think she re- I was a bit taken aback by that. I think yeah. I was a little bit shocked. But I remember writing about Charlie Chaplin and how he, um, yeah, he was in and out of orphanages and workhouses and got to the stage where he started hiding from authorities so that they wouldn't take him away from his mother anymore. Um, And yet, and as Jackie was saying, often that part of his story is forgotten or not told or dismissed. And yet he's one of the greats of all time when it comes to to films. Yes, but but it's the character that he of the tramp was really uh, uh, a caricature of the way he viewed his life I think and probably a caricature of the many of the people that he met you know growing up in in care and in orphanages and stuff and and he was a he was a sympathetic character somebody that you that you grew to love who was just creative and different and funny and I think that was his way of interpreting his experiences so it's interesting to, I guess it's important to understand what Charlie Chaplin's background is so that you can have a better understanding of the character he drew. Yes, I think so. I think so. And it's and it's interesting that we can dismiss that. It reminds me of Ella Fitzgerald. Do you remember the jazz great? She never talked about the fact that she, because lots of us have wanted to hide it, hide, hide, and yeah, I do. I do appreciate that and understand that. Um, and she never talked about the fact that she was in the estate ward when she was in about fifteen years of age in New York. Never talked about it. Um, and I, I get why she wouldn't. But also, you just think, well, wouldn't you want to tell kids these days about her and about Charlie Chaplin and maybe not Prince Philip, but lots of other people. I think you want to encourage people to look to some of these people that have risen above their early beginnings, I think, and that they've found a way to be themselves and to be creative and maybe use their experiences growing up to um, to educate others, you know. But I think you have to understand f- what their experiences were also and how those experiences have been portrayed in any of the work that they've done. Yes. You know, I don't know what Ella Fitzgerald's story necessarily is, but you wonder about her singing and some of the stuff that she sings about, which um, may be informed 
by who she was growing up. I think that's really important and a really important lens that we could therefore go back and have a look at her work through. I was there, I've, I, I kind of got thrown back to the beginning of the conversation and, and Prince Philip. I think the difference between, say, the admiration we might have for Charlie Chaplin or Ella Fitzgerald who came from poverty and yet became, you know, world international figures um, and Prince Philip is that privilege that they came from nothing and used their talents and skills and whatever help and mentoring they had along the way it's not like they wouldn't have had any um, to and it's not yeah it's not like they did it on their own um, versus however the amount of privilege that he had so he didn't ever have to overcome any poverty <laughs> for example no. No, in, in and he had servants and whatever else. Yes, and there is a vast chasm between that sense of privilege and entitlement versus other stuff as well. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it, that I guess that's the big difference for me between a character like Prince Philip, whom I'd be most compassionate about uh, about his kinship care experiences and the loss of his mother and... And I do remember seeing that in the crowd, a crown. I'd forgotten about it, though, until I was reminded of it this weekend. Um, so, yeah, enormous compassion that I feel for him for his childhood e experiences. But my admiration goes to somebody like um, like Charlie Chaplin, even though he did some odd things. Um, but my admiration goes to him for... I guess making the most out of his difficult experiences and finding, as you say, a way to express that, which gave enormous pleasure and delight to audiences around the world. Mm. So he, yeah. So I'm not quite sure what. Prince the thing is that as as artists, they often found ways to express their experiences. It probably applies to most artists, I guess, because that's what life is about for them: expressing their experiences. But in terms of their actual lives, it was often different. It was, yes. You know, he had a number of marriages and he married, when he was 80, someone who was really young. And Yeah, so there's and some uncomfortable things in his, <laughs> his background for me. So, you know, type relationships were probably difficult, maybe. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just making that assumption. I haven't read any of Charlie Chaplin's biographies, but I'm assuming that they were. So there would be, there's, there's these two sides of it, I guess. There's this artistic side, which expresses how they interpret their lives, I guess. And then there's this other part, which is how they live their lives, which is often a product, maybe, of the way they were raised. Yeah, maybe a product. It's, it's kind of hard to tell because I was thinking about Edgar Allan Poe, who is apparently the inventor of the detective genre, of which we're very fond. Mm. And um, he was in foster care from the age of three. And I remember that he married somebody who was 13, and when I looked up whether that was even possible these days still in the United States, it's still possible to marry somebody who's 13, although these days in you might need to, in, in some, some states. states. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you don't have to have had a care experience to, to be a bit grubby around that sort of stuff, I don't think, and still marry yeah, somebody. Allen. Yeah, exactly. No, and I don't know his background. But well, I don't know his background. Either. Worth investigating, maybe. Maybe worth investigating. But, uh, yeah, so... And 
well, you know. I think sometimes we... just call that pedophilia, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes we forget about when we focus on care experience, that's one aspect of a person's life, and we forget about things like the whole discourse around masculinity and entitlement and privilege and all of that sort of stuff, which comes into play too. So we shouldn't just think that there are, that's the only aspect of their experience. They're also part of a larger culture too. Yeah, that's, that's right, and that... Well, that influences you no matter who you are, no matter what your experience is too, doesn't it? The sense of our self is and our gender and the way we must impose our male masculinity on poor, unsuspecting females. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, yes. So, yeah, amazing. Um, amazing night. I was just delighted with how it all went and that the technology worked. And, <laughs> and it was very stressful leading up to it. <laughs> yeah, because you do want these things to go really well. And we were having some trouble cleaning all the data for the website. And I think that's an o- that's going to probably be an ongoing um, thing and and it's not the sort of thing that I could just nip over and help with because they're in the UK and um, I did as much as that I could do from here. Um, yeah, so a bit stressful leading up to it, but an absolutely delightful event. So yeah, it was, uh, and I was very proud of you too. Thank you because you did Thank a you. fabulous job, and it was just great seeing so many people and uh, having so many people. I think there was a t- general connectiveness that people had by having this opportunity I thought all these care experience people here talking about their care experiences and uh, um, and I thought that they there was a freedom about yes. it. it was like an, a sense of acknowledgement that oh god at least somebody now recognizes that we do have these experiences and that there's a place in which they can be recognized which is through your website and the project I love that word freedom thank you for that I, I've always known that if you're with care experience people you don't have to explain anything you know there's a lot of your experience that somebody else will get without explanation which is fantastic so there's a lot you don't have to explain and I always feel I always come away from gatherings where there are care experience people a lot of which I do over zoom um, at the moment I often come away just feeling Feeling, I suppose, connected to my tribe. I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like, uh, someone did raise the fact that I think this is a key issue too, <coughs> is that everybody has a different experience and that we shouldn't exclude those, those that really suffered and were traumatic as opposed to Kirsty, who had a, had a, a, stable, uh, a stable foster experience. We don't know what in what there was about that experience and how she viewed her foster experience necessarily because she didn't talk about it. <coughs> but it is worth noting that <coughs> people have completely different experiences and that we mustn't think that there's this uh, homogenous way of viewing experiences either. No, and that's one of the things that we've been doing for Care Experience History Month is allowing people to tell whatever story they want to tell. And some of those stories are very, very sad stories so um 
we do need to acknowledge that. The diversity was one of the things that Nell and I found when we were looking at the foster care project, that there was not one story. There was no typical Mm. experience. And you could get two people, like my sister and I, I guess, in the one foster care family who had quite different experiences as well. Uh, So it's it's a really good point that we need to acknowledge all of those experiences. Yes, and that... And that there needs to be, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, uh, partly because of your project and partly because the adoption issue came up. I posted something on Facebook the other day that's got like a couple of thousand hits. Uh, And it was just, uh, um, there was a meme, it was just a saying, something about, I forget what I said specifically now, but um, it was about adoption and it raised this debate about, uh, so there were these two sides, I guess, one side saying, um, you know, adoption means that I, you know, I lose my sense of identity and all that other stuff. And there was another one saying that it meant that they had a place and they, they had a sense of family and this other stuff. And and it was almost like one side wasn't prepared to listen to the other side. And that um, so I, so we're actually doing a, I'm doing an interview with with one of these sides <coughs> in, a, in a tonight or tomorrow. Forget what I'm doing it, but. <coughs> um, but in that, you know, and I really wanted to get both sides of the of the coin, because, um, and it's really hard. I find it really hard as a political party to develop a policy that sits across the board, because there are times when adoption is probably appropriate. So you can't say all oh, adoption is wrong, whatever. What you can do is question the motive for the legislation and what. And, and that sort of stuff, and people's reasons for wanting to legislate in this area. But um, but there are, there are so many different stories, and so many, and none of these stories are wrong, you know. Um, so you can only argue, I guess, about the principles that are associated with something like adoption or being in care, because not everybody's care experience is a bad one. Exactly. And I think that is such an important point. And some people will say that they were better off being in state care than being with their parents. I find it hard. I I couldn't say categorically whether I was better off or not because I didn't know anything about my parents. So it was it's hard to know. Um, But I I do remember there's a sociologist in um, I think he's based in Sydney, Rob Watts. And he wrote very poignantly a chapter in one of the books that I edited about his experience of finding out that he was a... No, sorry, he was Victorian because he grew up in Fitzroy. And he he writes about discovering that he was adopted when he was an adult. And I think he might have been in his 30s. And he wanted a passport and he needed to have a birth certificate. And that's when he f- found out. And then he goes back home and he's, his... His mum says, well, I was adopted and your grandmother was adopted. You know, adoption runs in the family. <laughs> and funnily enough, he did a little bit of searching for birth family. And then that was enough for him. So he did. I don't think he got to the point of meeting. Whereas there are other stories. There's a really poignant story of another Australian, Shelton Lee, who by the time he found his out about his birth mother she had died and that was really really sad but interestingly enough interestingly he was a poet and so was she all right and yet they they didn't meet which was really really interesting so there's two contrasting stories just out of victoria 
Um, and and Shelton Lee's story was really quite horrendous. So Rob Watts was happy in the end with his adoption story. Shelton Lee was adopted by oh, by the Daryl Lee family, a member oh, of the Daryl right. Lee yeah, yeah, family. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he went into privilege. Was that a terrible story? It was for him, a terrible though? story for him because his they. His mother was a shocker, wasn't she? She, yeah, his adoptive mother really wanted adopted him and a couple of other kids as play kids for their, you know, for their biological kids, and treated them differently and told them that they could never expect to inherit anything from the family. And then when he started acting up and playing up, rejected him at age 15, he became a ward of the state. Um, so they were, they were dreadful to him. And I think they had him into psychiatrists at a really early age because he couldn't settle down. And, you know, she was the problem, not him, as far as, as far as I could see it. So I don't have one view on adoption. I think I definitely agree what, that what they call plenary adoption, mm. where they write off your yeah. background. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I disagree with closed adoptions too. Yeah. Where, and I, you know, one of the issues from last night too that that is a continuing issue for me and that is um, the parents' position in this process. So there was no discussion around parents last night. Um, there are obviously a number of cases where the parents were pretty crappy and uh, perhaps the kids should not have well, undoubtedly, the kids should not have been with these parents. Um, so I get all of that, but there's there's no. Is there is there, hold on? Is there a place for a parent's voice in the conversation around care experience? Do you think or not? That's a really good question, and you can tell by my hesitance. <laughs> That have I, I had asked you that, that question I had all the time. given it. Have I ever asked you that question before? I don't think you have asked me that before. I do know that you know I'm connected with people in the UK who work with parents, and um, I know that there are people who do studies around, but they're parents who've already been through the system themselves, if you know what I mean. So, if as far as I know, my parents had no connection with the system when their children were taken away except that I think there might have been a care experience in there in that I think that my mother the story goes that my mother was raised by her grandmother and thought she, that the grandmother was the mother oh, right, yeah. so there is that sort of odd thing um, yeah it's a it's a really good point no again I think there is that I think there is a silence and there's a clamoring there. for those voices uh, out there somewhere like there's uh, um, th those people are quite loud about talking about their experiences of the department and having kids removed and what it means to them and um, and I don't I don't think well I guess they do through us at the Child Protection Party but but generally their voices are not recognized um, as being legitimate because they're seen as bad parents yet the um, and I just wonder whether, as a comparison, whether the experiences of kids that were in care, um, whether their voices are just as loud, just as meaningful, just as purposeful, um, just as significant as the voices of parents. 
It's interesting because, and remembering that in Australia we don't talk about care experience so much, don't use that terminology, but in the UK there's been a discussion about how you define care experience and part of that discussion has been around professionals saying they have care experience because they're working in the field. So I remember that discussion. But whether the parents are care experienced because they've lost their children to the system, that hasn't come up. That's so that is a that is a valid gap that you've drawn attention to. But surely um But they do like have having kids they in have care ex- they have experience of the system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's this two diametrically opposed positions, you know, kids that are in care and what that experience is like, parents who lose their kids and what's th- what that is like. And uh, and sometimes that's through, that's just not the case, that's through the family law court and other stuff and whether these people have a voice uh, within that system. And and I don't I don't so who drowns who out? This is the question. Um, the parents yeah, it's just a question for which I do not have an answer. I, d- I don't have an answer. I don't feel as if um, care experienced people are drowning out the voice of parents because... No, the system... I, I think, think the, the system drowns out everybody's voices except, except the voices of academics or legitimated voices. Do you know what I mean? Professionals, academics, well, policy makers. Well, the professionals are the one that implement the system and that uh, ensure the system functions poorly um yes so unless you're a professional working in the area academic whatever unless you're people like kenny and Kirsty, um people generally don't have a voice no on either side no on either side so i guess that people like rosie and i are wanting to address that gap in terms of care experience people and change that narrative and we're leaving it to you to take up the issue of parents but do you in the think system. I, d- I wonder whether this is a really interesting. I don't know how to describe this. Whether there's a crossover though, because all these care experience kids now adults whatever have an experience of their parents, either it's a positive or a negative one. I would suggest 99 percent of the time or 90 percent of the time it's probably a negative one of their parents um, and what opportunities you know like you're questioning whether or not how would you have turned out had you lived with your parents and you're not being removed chances are you may have turned out exactly as you are now because you might have made decisions about your life um, which were in your best interest who knows we don't know um, so to what extent do children think about how that might have been for them you know do, do they know whether their parents were able to sort out their lives do they know whether they were taken inappropriately from their parents on the grounds that perhaps they shouldn't have been um have you know i just wonder about all those questions whether people think about them i all. do i think they do think about them and, uh, and i'm sure in some of the memoirs and autobiographies we'll find that children were taken inappropriately and sometimes not inappropriately so a couple of stories that I'm very well aware of is because I was reflecting on it recently is Joanna Penglaze who's one of the co-founders of the of clan the care leavers um what is that 
network. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Mental blank there. Now, her mother put her into an orphanage, say, in the 1940s. I think maybe she was born about 1945. Um, Joanna was. I can't remember the date. But at a time when there was very little support, you know, sort of welfare support for mothers, for single mothers. And that's a that's quite a common story in Australia, that parents who didn't have any other means of support put their children into orphanages. And so she kind of got to know her mother later on, and her mother would always visit, but... Um, so there was a... She maintained a connection with her girls within that private orphanage by visiting etc so maintain the connection versus somebody like um, a woman in in my foster care book whose mother I think I talked about that last week at another presentation where the children were where mum went for help to the to the local department and then never got her girls back and the girls didn't have any real relationship with their mother except visits, but they didn't understand who that woman was that they were visiting. And then, and then you've got to wonder, or I wonder, about the severing of that relationship. The system itself is designed so that the biological parent doesn't have that contact and whether that colours the child's version of who their parent is. Because in many cases, they don't even get to know their parent. Their parent could be... Mother Teresa herself, I guess, but they would never know the intricacies of their parent to a point whereby they could understand how their parent felt about their removal and whether they ever have, and whether parents ever have that conversation with their kids about <coughs> what it meant to them to lose them. They possibly do, and it's kind of another whole area um, that maybe I haven't given sufficient attention to. Um, so have you some read any books? Have you ever have you read any books about a parent's struggle around having lost a child? I wa I wasn't going to mention it because I can't remember the woman's name. <laughs> but there is a fairly recent story, Australian story published of a woman who went back into prison and sh her child had gone into foster care. So she wasn't in um, foster care or anything herself she grew up with her mother there was lots of abuse and, and awful stuff going on and then she ended up going into prison I think for drugs can't really remember and then she wrote and then her, she ended up with her child in foster care and then eventually I think the child came back to her after quite some after quite some time so she writes about that and she writes about the prison system and, and all that but, but I wasn't going to mention it because I can't remember her name right now Okay, before we finish, is that is that a book you wanted to... Oh, I was going to tell you, because at some point we were talking about me reading... Um, it's a 2012 Pulitzer Prize book by a guy, an American called Adam Johnson. It's called The Orphan Master's Son. And, yeah, it's a fat fucker is how I... <laughs> it's almost 600 pages, so it's taken me a couple of weeks to read it. Not only because it's quite long, but also because it's quite a difficult read because it's set in North Korea and um, and it is about North Korea. So the characters are set there 
And initially I was uncomfortable reading an American story of North Korea because, you know, how we can be a bit prejudiced about other countries. So I read the back of the book after I was about 50 pages in and there's a conversation there with somebody else that Adam Johnson has had with the editor of the book, actually. Um, And he talked about the research that he had done for this book and the idea of orphans threads all the way through because the major protagonist was in an orphanage in Korea, in North Korea. And a couple of things about that, one that you learn, um, one I found out that the very first person that Adam Johnson spoke to in his research for this book, and there's lots of research at the back of it, and I felt better about reading it once I'd found out about his research. And um, the very first person that he spoke to who had defected from North Korea to the United States was an orphan. And so the protagonist in the story becomes kind of this, is this orphan character. And so you learn a bit about how North Koreans see orphans. But what struck me or the question that it made me ask was, is that a common, is that a universal phenomenon that orphans uh, have such a low status? They have a very, very low status, the lowest probably in North Korea, but we also know they have a very low status in Australia, even if they're kind of orphans of the living and have been removed from their their parents. So I was struck by that. So in the end, I don't know why I wouldn't have thought he would have done great research because he is an academic and... I expect academics to go and do (laughs) thorough research. And he did because he read a lot of narratives from people who'd been, uh, who had defected from North Korea to the United States. So it's not an, what I was cautious about was I didn't want to read something that was extolling the freedom of North Korea, of, of the United States against North Korea. And I don't think he does do that, but he does talk about some of the difficulties of, of people of people's lives in North Korea but mostly I was interested in this theme of orphans running through there that it doesn't matter if you're in Asia or or America your status is going to be low if you're an orphan. So is an orphan someone who's who's, or parents have passed away? Um, in this story, well, that's theoretically um, not nece- not necessarily. That's kind of the accepted definition of an orphan, but in actual fact, it's a bit more elastic um, than so that. So, could a foster kid be defined as an orphan? Yeah, yeah, it could be defined basically. as. Cause yeah, because the because the, the states declared that the parents unfit exactly so they yeah and so Joanna Penglase whom I mentioned off um, earlier she her book is called Orphans of the Living because these children were separated and we're talking about children who possibly had no further contact at all unlike contemporary children who are in the state who are in state care who have these weird access visits um, so yeah they would be defined as as orphans of the living I guess mm. So you enjoyed that read? It was a diff- well, enjoy is a hard word. I enjoyed his writing. Uh, I thought that was very, very skillful and I always felt immersed in the story, but it's a difficult read because it is about a country where people mm. are oppressed. Are they ever? Most oppressed of all, I would suggest. Right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us with Conversations Over Coffee. I hope you've enjoyed this particular conversation. And we ask you to stay tuned for others in the future. So take care, look after yourself and be safe.